0: This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. Uh Hi everyone, it's Michael, also known as Chicago Wiz, and welcome to episode 60 of Dungeon Master's Handbook. Wow, we're already at 60, and it only took me five, five months to get there. I recorded my 50th episode at the end of March of this year, and it took me nearly a year to go from 40 to 50, so I guess my uh, pace is picking up a bit. Woohoo! All right, in this episode, I'm going to answer uh, some questions and also take some call-ins. Um, the questions are interesting because they cover a little bit about things that I do in my campaign and the Collins will be talking a little bit about again chain mail and ODD. So, let's get to it. Um, the questions I'm going to be answering came from Sean, a uh, gentleman who wrote in to me with some questions originally about my uh, 3 hex uh, system for starting a campaign and we exchanged some emails and he sent me Well, I actually assuming it's he uh sean if i've misgendered you sorry Uh, i i'm assuming he uh maybe that's wrong so um they uh wrote me some questions about uh some specific things in my campaign and i thought it'd be interesting to go through them here so sean writes i took your advice and stuck with a hex crawl and got the three hexes started i have two towns with three hexes each i think that's awesome um Sean took the idea that you start with a home base and then you expand to three hexes around it as kind of your starting point. You know, you have three ideas to drive your campaign forward and give the players some choice on what they want to do and kind of inform them about what your campaign is going to be about. But just three hexes is only a suggestion. You know, I, I started off my uh, campaign with just three hexes, and it quickly expanded into many thousand hexes, probably within about six months. But that's because that was my enjoyment. Um, But anytime I start a campaign now, I try to start small. Um, and, And that helps me both to get out of the blank page paralysis, as well as the paralysis that can come when you're thinking about, oh my God, I got to create a world and an entire, you know, pantheon and lore and all of that and blah, you know, no, nope, just three hexes, three places for your players to go. Um, and, uh, you know, Sean, that's great. I'm, I'm glad that it, it worked out for you and, and uh, can't wait to see what you've come up with. Uh, Sean then writes, um, he asked me, would I, Michael, be interested in continuing my read through of *Anar Arcana? Um, Sean goes on to say that they love hearing about stuff from the old books and learning from them. So I had started reading through Unearthed Arcana before COVID and um, yeah, absolutely I would. Um next couple of episodes, the next episode is going to be about, uh, my discoveries of OD&D by going to Holmes Basic, and then I'm also going to be talking a little bit more about Traveler, hopefully by then, that episode, I will have done my space combat solo, uh, walkthroughs, and we can talk about how I'm changing space combat, but absolutely, you know, some other things I was thinking about, talking about was, um, I had been reminded that I wrote a micro Mech warrior clone based on the first edition Mech Warrior RPG, which is the role-playing game based in the Battletech universe. Um, and I also thought about doing a read-through of Empire of the Petal Throne. Um, EPT is something that, um, while I haven't gotten to play it as much, it's a fascinating book, um, and every time I read through it, <laughs> I, I get inspired with ideas. So... Um, But absolutely, maybe I will continue The Unearthed Arcana. Um, It's uh, not a book that I use in my campaign, but it certainly is (laughs) interesting to read. Um, Then uh, Sean goes on to talk about that they like in terms of using skills and expertises they like the more open, as they put it the open style of OSR play versus uh, someone in who from the later editions would say well i just roll a perception roller i just roll a stealth roller i just roll you know this roller or that roll to do something And uh, they go on to say, I've not had the best luck in getting my in person players to do things in that way, meaning that OSR way. And, uh, you know, like, okay, I, I want to investigate if there's a trap on this door. Okay, what do you do? Well, I'm gonna take a good look at the frame. I'm gonna look and see if I see anything sticking out. Maybe some sort of weird substance smeared on the door or the handle itself. Is there anything tied to the door handle? Uh, is there anything protruding from the frame that looks like you know it, it might be affected? And so, as the player is describing that, I would pick up the idea. Okay, these are the kinds of things you're looking for. This is what you're you're obviously being very careful. Why? Yes, you do notice that on the bottom of the door as it swings open there's a little stick that's kind of wedged there and there is a small thread on tied on that stick leading off into the room beyond and thus the player probably understands ah this door is trapped I need to handle that zero rolls involved in that now if the you know in my campaign and just to digress for a minute um I roll when um, well, actually, I'm going to explain that. So my general approach to these things is that most of the time, things that players want to do are automatic because I want the players to understand that, you know, even at first level, they have a little bit of expertise. You know, they are better than, well, not better than, they, they, are, they have more skills and more expertise in certain areas than, say the uh normal person that's just going to their 9 to 5 job you know uh the, the mage is going to have some expertise in magic you know the, the cleric is going to have some expertise in serving their deity the fighter is probably a veteran of some battles already you know and so on and so a lot of the things that the players are going to do are just going to be automatic if it fits in with their you know selected um, class you know if a fighter says well I want to you know cast a spell or deal with this magic item that's when we get into looking at things like roles now roles I generally base on the difficulty of the situation or the situation itself and you know sometimes I'll ask my question is failure interesting in a way that advances the campaign you know because <laughs> Failure can be interesting all the time, but if it's just interesting for the two minutes of, well, you know, you you can't open this door now, so you got to go another way. Well, you know, and, and we're going to roll on it. Well, that's not very interesting, and I'm probably not going to have a roll on it. I'm just going to tell them, no, you can't open the door, you know, plain and simple. But... I like to have the rules when, you know, you know, if it's a difficult situation, you know, if you're in the middle of combat and trying to do something or you're in the middle of stressful uh, scenario and doing something. Um, The other thing that I think that helps reinforce that play is so, you know, first players want to do something. You know, if a player comes up and says, you know, oh, I make a perception check, blah, blah, blah no need to roll. You can obviously see that there is a door there. You don't need a perception check for that. Um, you know, in, in how I word things, you know, if they say, Oh, I want to make a perception check to check for traps. Well, you don't need to, you can just check for a trap because you're not in a stressful situation. You know, it's not difficult to look at a door and see if it's, if it's trapped or not. Um, I also find that character sheets reinforce the way you want to play. You know, if a character sheet is full of skills and levels and pluses and minuses, then players are probably going to pick up on, hey, I need to roll for a lot of things. But if a character sheet just says you are skilled in seeing traps and being sneaky and pilfering people's pockets, but you don't necessarily put any numbers there, then that reinforces the idea that the character can do this but there's gonna be some interaction with the ref. Hey, I see that I'm good at sneaking, how does that work? Well, you tell me how you sneak, the situation you're sneaking, and we'll see what happens. And then from there, I can decide if they re- need a role or not. The last thing is, is being consistent about this. I try to be consistent in making things automatic when it makes sense and looking at a situation to see if a role is needed. And in reinforcing that conversation between me and the players, uh, as the players learn how to do this, then gradually they'll come around, you know, um, players are like anything else, you know, they're like referees. You got to kind of learn something. And by reinforcing it, doing it over and over consistently, they'll soon pick up on the idea of, Hey, this is how the game goes. Um the next thing Sean asked me about was customized classes um and uh, sh- they gave an example I am guessing this is from maybe fifth edition where um at third level a paladin has to take an oath to get some paladin skills and a druid at third level has to uh you know uh, find a circle to do things and absolutely I think that those kinds of tweaks to a um to a class make a whole bunch of sense when it reinforces the campaign and the setting um and in you know somewhat of a shout out to unearthed arcana you know with the cavalier and the barbarian um they very much supported concepts within the greyhawk world and so i think that you know having the Paladin take an at third level, which actually in AD&D would be fourth level because they've become a hero and now they are really in the eyes of their deity. They really are a champion now of that deity. And so that kind of makes sense. You know, that fits the style. But if, you know, your campaign is one where from the very get-go first level, they are this power machine, then great, do that at first level. Be consistent in your campaign and make it work for your game. And then finally, <laughs> Sean asked me about prestige classes and what I thought of them, and I had to go look that up because there is absolutely nothing in OD&D or AD&D first edition that talks about prestige classes, and I learned something. You know, I, in in third edition and and 3.5 there's this concept that if you meet certain requirements when you're leveling then you can specialize your class and I'm, I'm guessing a good chunk of you right now are nodding your heads because you played third edition i had never heard of this and and the note on um uh, on the uh, Stack Exchange said, this was based on cult levels from RuneQuest. So now I have to go poke around to some of my RuneQuest uh, friends and say, hey, what's this thing about cult levels? Um, So what I read, it kind of made me think that, okay, you know, um, for me, prestige classes don't necessarily come into play in, in my campaign because I think the game itself and the player imagination is the key. You know, if they have these ideas of tweaking their class based on their experiences, based on the setting, based on, who you know, what faction they're associated with, I'll have that discussion. You know, I, I think OD&D and AD and even AD&D with, you know, how it did things, it still provides enough flexibility that a referee can go ahead and do those things, and there's a lot of latitude in tweaking the classes to match the campaign and setting. If you've listened to my podcast long enough, you've probably gotten the definite impression, I'm not really fond of a bunch of books. Um, I, I would much rather pick up things from modules, or from magazines, or from blog posts, or YouTube, or whatever, than to have all of these things codified in the rules. Give me the structure, give me the approach, give me the freedom to do this the way I want to do it, and I'll love that game. But if you set down with me, you know, five, you know, however many books there are for fifth edition, I know there was a ton for second edition and a ton for third edition, Those are okay for me, but in some ways there's like a pressure there. Well, you have to do it the way the book is. And and I think that also, you know, we were talking about reinforcing behavior with character sheets. I think if players see all these books with all of these options... They don't get the sense that you can create your own. They just get the sense of, or at least it's been my experience, that they get the sense of, well, these are the rules and all of these books are saying to do it this way. So I have to wait for the next book to come out so I can have this option or that option rather than working out with their DM. I would much rather do it the latter way. Anyway, thank you, Sean. I really appreciated the email and the comments. And so with that now we're going to get to some call-ins. I have my first call-in of this episode from Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast.
1: Hey Michael, Jason here. Just want to say I enjoyed episode 58. Thank you for sharing how you do missile combat in D&D. It's really interesting to see how different people do you know interpret it differently and and handle it differently. So you know, it's very valuable to hear Daniel's episode and hear your episode and see the differences there. So thank you for doing that. And, and I definitely think everything you said makes sense and can, can see doing it that way, and I can see the way Daniel's doing it. So I, I don't necessarily think there's a wrong way. You just have to decide what's comfortable for you and your group. I think that is about it, as you can probably tell I'm in the car. So I will look forward to your next episode and the update on the tra- on your Battlestar Galactica Traveler game. Take care and keep up the great work.
0: Hey, Jason, thanks a lot for that call. Yes, I really do love the diversity of all of these od and and chainmail referees talking about how they do it. You know, I, I find that I'm learning from them, and I'm also, you know, Still, I still go back to the OD&D forum and read what the posts are there. Even if they don't necessarily relate to my game, it's always interesting to see how other people do things, you know, I pick up stuff. You know, even if I don't use it, I find that getting all of this input helps me to strengthen my game. And, you know, best case, I learn something new or come up with something new. Or if a player comes up with a situation, I think, huh, you know, Daniel handled that this way or... You know, um, uh, the, the the cleric handled that the other way. And or, you know, I read about this on a forum and I can draw on that. So, no, absolutely. I really love all of the diversity and the discussions we're having. And, um, yeah, thanks a lot, Jason, for the call in. Next, we're going to hear from John from the Red Dice Diaries. Hey there, it's John from the Red Dice Diaries. Just listened to your episode about missile fire in chainmail and i've got to say I've, i for my sins i don't really know a great deal about chainmail obviously i know it was part of the sort of D D history but aside from a few odd bits and pieces i've read on the internet i don't really know a lot about it and i don't really tend to have sort of mass battle rules in my games
1: although i know you, that's not the only way you can use it but you listening to your podcast has definitely made me a little bit more interested and how I might be able
0: to potentially use that in the future of my games. And obviously I know that originally it was sort of like, it was the default combat system of D&D, I believe, before the, the optional method took over. But yeah, you've definitely inspired me to go and have a bit of a look at that. So thank you very much. Take care. Hey John, thank you for that call. I'm glad we've piqued your interest in chainmail. I hope you've had a chance to pick up the rules, or um, I believe I answered you kind of laterally through Daniel's podcast about uh, the retro clone restatement of chainmail called Grognard. And if you haven't found that yet, I will put a link to that in my show notes. And I'll also put a link to all the callers in my show notes as well for folks that want to see. Grognard is a great plain English restatement, reorganization, if you will, of the chainmail rules. And if I'm kind of scratching my head a little bit and confused about something, I'll go hop to Grognard to see uh, what it's all about. So, yeah, I I, I can't wait to hear what you come up with, and I hope you'll podcast about your first chainmail game. So thank you again, John. And last but not least, we are going to hear from Daniel of the Bandit Keeps podcast and YouTube channel and the whole
1: media empire. So what do you got to say, Daniel? Hey, Michael. Daniel from Ant's Keep calling in. Really enjoyed your episode on missile fire using the chainmail system, the troop combat system with your OD&D game. Makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, yeah, I had you have a question, though. So I came home and I was looking at my charts. And I've noticed that, for instance... If you are a single person, like a first-level fighter, and you're firing a bow, you've got about a fifty percent chance of hitting and you know scoring a hit against an unarmored opponent, but you have absolutely no chance of hitting half armor or shield or plate. So if you are that, uh, you know, first-level character with your one guy in the group with the bow, you basically can't hit anything unless it doesn't have armor on. Do you stick with that or, and then just say, well, you know, make sure you have enough people in your group that have bows so you can, you know, get to that level. Or do you have some kind of minimal, like one hit because, you know, or do you use the unarmored for the low level? I'm just curious how you do it, perhaps with the penalty, maybe they only hit on a six. I'm just curious if you've made up a rule for that or it's not become an issue because you play at a higher level or always have enough people. But I'm curious how that would play out because I always think of parties of like like two and three people, you know, sometimes they get beat down to that level. And maybe that just makes their bows ineffective against heavily armored people. That certainly seems realistic. So I'd be curious what you do in those cases. Because I know for me, and I may have mentioned this in mine, like with a short bow, for instance, you basically can't hit, you know, somebody in chain or plate or whatever. You need a better weapon to do that. So this is kind of the equivalent, except it's number of people, not so much weapon. So I would love to know how you handle that. And uh, keep up with all the excellent episodes. I'll talk to you soon.
0: Hey, Daniel, thanks for the comments, and that's a great question. So, for the folks uh, who don't have chainmail in front of them, what uh, Daniel is talking about, at least from the third edition of chainmail, is the chart on page 11 where it talks about uh, resolving missile fire. So, in that uh, table, you have the number of figures who are shooting if their target is unarmored wearing a little bit of armor, has a shield, or if that target is fully armored. And then it breaks it down by the number of shooters or your fighting capability. And either a 1 through 3 you hit this many times, or a 4 through 6 you hit that many times. And you have to be 3rd or 4th, you either have to be 3 or 4 figures shooting, or have a fighting capability of 3 or 4 in order to have a 50-50 chance of getting one hit on someone who has some armor or has a shield. And you have to be a hero level, meaning, you know, four figures or a fighting capability of four, to put a hit or have 50% chance of putting a hit on someone who's fully armored. And absolutely, to me, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it has actually come up, and the way I explain it to the players is it really is difficult um, you know, you, you are, uh, you, you're not skilled enough yet. Uh, you haven't had the enough experience. You only have a dagger or, uh, a, a, a single bow and arrow. You're going to need more or, you know, the more experience you get, you're going to learn how to make that single arrow count for right now. No, you're gonna to have to put the bow away and use something else to uh, to to hit them. And and again, this kind of makes sense to me with the power level of OD&D. You know, when you look at OD&D and chainmail, it was kind of thought that if you're first to third level, you are a normal person in the process of becoming a hero. And once you hit fourth level, then you are a hero, and you know you can do all these wonderful things where the later versions of D&D start you with the expectation that you're already at that hero level. You know, you're already force level. So so th- there is a bit of, I could see a, um, a breakdown or a, a miss in the expectation that new players may have coming into the game. Um, you know, it makes sense to me that a hero would know how to use their bow and arrow to possibly hit a fully armored individual. Now... Where this really has come up is in my res- uh, Rescue of Hamlet game. So there are three characters that this would affect. So there's Brother Smythe, the druid, who can hurl a hammer, and they have a fighting capability of two. There's Spugnor, the magic user, who could hurl a dagger. They have a fighting capability of one plus one. And then there's Furnock, the thief, who can also hurl a dagger, <laughs> although he probably doesn't want to. Spoiler, it's a magical dagger. Uh, he has a fighting capability of two plus one one so now with with the way i do the magical uh, daggers is is when when you hurl a magic or when you use a magical weapon it adds a die so in, in this actuality if fernok threw his magical dagger then he would actually have the possibility of hitting a half-armored individual or individual with a shield <coughs> excuse me although usually in play People are trying to keep the magic user out of combat, and Brother Smythe uh, somewhat away because they're the spellcasters and they want to protect them. So they're usually not putting them close enough to uh, individuals to hurl their weapons. So, so it has come up. the uh, The normal uh, soldiers in this uh, rescue Hamlet game. They are already a troop unit, so they're grouped by 10. There's 50 of them. So when they shoot their missiles at armored individuals, you know they've already got the numbers on their side to, to make a hit. Um, so interesting question as well, Daniel, because I'm actually thinking, <laughs> and, and uh, when I was writing the answer to this, I actually posted to my uh, ODD players, what do you guys think about trying chain mail out? So um, I'm thinking about running a kind of a workshop example uh, session where we'll get together and run through some chain mail combats, and I'm sure missile fire will come up, so this will be one of the things we'll end up discussing. All right. Well, thanks, Daniel, for that question. Uh, great stuff as always. Uh, if you all haven't, please go uh, check out these podcasters, Jason, uh, at Nerds RPG Variety Cast, John at Red Dice Diaries, and Daniel at uh, Bandits Keep Podcast. All right, that's it for now. As I mentioned, next episode, I'm going to be talking about Holmes Basic and how it gets me to learn a little bit more about OD&D. So I hope you'll tune in for that. And until next time, game on.